Awesome. All right. There we go. I think this could work. Is everybody good? All right. So, man, when Pastor Mickey was like, hey, can you kind of come and share with us and everything? I, I take those particular type of invitations very, very seriously. So I took it to the Lord and I'm like, Lord, is this you? Like what's happening here? Is this? And he was like, oh, heck yeah, it's me. And I was like, okay, whenever he says that, um, I get a little nervous because when I feel like when the spirit of the Lord is so excited about a particular group of people, it's, it's never going to go the way you think, right? See, I like, I like surgical preaching. I like the Baptists. You know what I'm saying? They say you have 30 minutes. If God's going to, we're open to the spirit moving. We're open to revival. We're open. If it can happen in 28 minutes, we're here for it all. 29 minutes is the devil. 30 minutes, you're excommunicated. You know what I'm saying? I like that because you can come in, hit your points, hit your illustration, land it, you know, make a call. And, but this right here, y'all, when God wants to speak to a particular group, this is messy, right? This is unpredictable. This is the type of stuff that you never get invited again. You know what I'm saying? But, and so I wrestled with that, but um, I felt like I had a word. And so when, uh, uh, when if Michelle was going to come back, but it just didn't work out, it wasn't the time. And so when he told me what he wanted me to speak on, I was like, ah, oh, Lord, that's why you wanted me to go holler at this group of people right here. When I walked in here, I was like, oh, that makes sense. How many of you guys know that when you follow I mean, you guys are all techie and super cool and hip and hype and everything. I wear sweaters with joggers, man. I don't even know if that's legal. But look past that. Just choke that to me being African. You know what I'm saying? Just like he's African. God bless his heart. But, 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 but there was way back in the day when I first came to the U.S., there was this thing called MapQuest. I don't know if you guys know what MapQuest is. Yo, MapQuest was the G, man. It was OG. So if you wanted to go somewhere, you had to go in a computer, print out... And literally, there was a map and directions, and you just hope that someone did not change something at night and everything. If you showed up, right, it was it, showing up was not guaranteed. And MapQuest was all about, boom, right there, I see everything on that, right? And then the technology advanced, and then GPS came along, and you know what it is, right? It's turn by turn. And so when it comes to moments and movements like this, I feel like the Lord leads us in turn by turn. But everything about who we are, right, we're comfortable, especially being a seven with a wing eight and everything. I'm very comfortable in the map quest. I want to see it all. I want to know where I'm starting, where I'm going to land, and we're just going to go from there. So this right here, this conversation is going to be more of a GPS conversation. I have the notes right here, but this morning I was telling Pastor Mickey, I just laid them before the Lord. I was like, you do what you want to do. And he was like, thank you. So he took my thing, he crumpled it, and he threw it. And he was like, I want the first part of this. I want you to go and give a word to a community that I'm breathing and moving upon. Give them a specific, this specific word about what is coming. And then on the back end, you can uh, go ahead and, and, and do what you did. So if we don't get to the, the righteousness aspect, we will get to it. But if we don't get as in-depth into it as I wanted to, that's what it is about. But um, I love this conversation. It's talking about the kingdom. The whole dynamic of the kingdom is expansion. In any context, not just Christian, whatever. In any context, when you think about kingdoms, right? When there's a king over a kingdom, it's all about territory and taking land and expanding, right? He, his kingdom is an ever-increasing kingdom. So right now, the reason that you are on this side of the cross, right? The reason that you exist in a context to where the glory of God and the operative ethos of the Godhead is not in a box somewhere that you make a pilgrimage and kind of dabble on the edges of whatever he's doing. The reason that the Shekinah glory, right? The essence of Yahweh, the same spirit that hovered over the face of the, the same voice that spoke those things now dwells on the inside of you guys and catch this without measure, right? That literally means your assignment becomes the measure of how much grace pours out of you. It's biblical. You guys, I'll give you guys scriptures after this, but I'm just kind of uh, going and everything. But, but when, 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 you, when you do that, when, when the reason that you exist on this side of the cross right now is because there's something about unique makeup, your unique makeup and DNA, right? That God was like, this person has advancement capabilities and capacities for my kingdom, so what I'm going to do is this generation right now, San Francisco or wherever God is calling your context had a cry and they cried out to the Lord. And we see this right all over the Bible. And he took the answer, wrapped it in skin and called it Mickey. Took the answer, wrapped it in skin, called it Zion, called it Dan, called it Krista, whatever it is. And then he sends you into this context and you are his plan. That's why he's not over there like, uh, you know, watching the news right now. He's not watching like uh, Fox and, and going, oh my gosh, and worrying about Russia or whatever. No, his divine game plan 
for this end of days lies on the inside of you. And as long as you are fearless to step into the deepest, darkest places, then you'll find out that all you are is a conduit, right? A proxy for the kingdom of heaven. What is the kingdom? It's righteousness, it's peace, and it's joy. It's whatever they need. The demand of your generation finds perfect supply through the conduit that is you. And as long as your perspective and your heart is the kingdom, you're going to see incredible things happening. Listen to me. Your hunger, your hunger, when you get to heaven, when you get to the other side of eternity, the difference between what you see and what you did not see, the difference, we were geeking out over this, the book of Acts and everything. The reason that they saw that is was their lean, right? What do you prioritize? What do you lean into? What do you hunger and thirst for? Like, what do you desire to see? Are you in a community of people that all you guys do is geek out? And see what God wants to do. Because I'll tell you this right now. Upper room, when it started, 15 people as a part of those. That's all it was. It was just a bunch of people going, hey, we want God so much. This can't be everything that there is. When we read the book of Acts, when we read the Bible, we see that he's alive and he wants and he desires to do these things. So let's get together and seek this God. And afterwards, in a context of community, let's process what we just sought. And hopefully that will spur us on to go back and seek him more. And out of that, God just was faithful and other seekers came right it's like what your roar attracts your tribe and all of a sudden the more that we roared in hunger for who he was and for his kingdom the more people started to kind of organically gathering around and before you knew it it was a lot of singles and then people were like well since we're going to be here and well might as well marry each other so they married each other when you get married you get kids they're like well since we do this we might as well have a kids ministry and before you knew it the the church called the upper room organically evolved around a movement of seeking and i feel and i sense that same hunger an ethos within this room right here. So I want to have a conversation, uh, some two ground rules uh, so you guys can understand where we're going. The book, the Bible says, can two walk together except they are agreed? So that basically means I found this out the, the, the hard way because when it comes to operationally, I'm an eight, right? It makes sense. So I remember one time we got a Jeep and my wife was like, we're going to go to Austin. Let's do a road trip. I was like, yes, let's do a road trip, right? That is goals on every Instagram couple story. We did an epic road trip. I was like, we're going to be those people. Let's go, my seven wife. And so I still remember we're like, all right, we're going to Austin. Now in my eight mind, I'm assuming that we're going to jump into the car and we're going to drive nonstop. We're going to break a couple of laws and break a couple of records on the way. And when we get there, we're going to do Austin stuff in Austin. But the only thing that we're in agreement with was the final destination. My wife has some African hippie thing on the inside of her. I don't know what it is. She wanted to stop and smell every flower. She wanted to, I'm talking about, if you've been to Texas, there's a thing called Bucky's. It is like the Mecca, right, of the South. It's like, it's literally a gas station with a hundred bathroom stalls and brisket, right? It's, it's, it's incredible. You should look it up. It's, it's called Bucky's. And so she wanted to stop at every Bucky's and she wanted to do this. So we were agreed on a specific destination, but because we did not communicate the nuance of how to get there, right? We had a lot of conflict along the way because my, that's all conflict is, right? It's the distance from expectation to reality. That's it. The expectations here, the reality is here. And right there, right, that, that minefield right there in the middle of those two points is what you call conflict. And so we kind of went there. And since then, I still remember I went to the Lord and I was processing. I was like, oh, we're going to be in Austin. I'm so frustrated. Oh, she's supposed to be high capacity. You know, you throw all those things at the Lord and everything. And he's like, well, every time you're in a situation, it either teaches you or it teaches them. So the posture of humility, whenever you go through something or you're in something, go like, Lord, Am I here so that through me you can teach them something? Or am I here so that through them you may teach me something? And that's the posture of humility. In that moment, I was, I was getting schooled, y'all. And here's what basically what the Lord w- w- was saying about my future communication. is like always establish how you're going to communicate because that way you don't lose people. right? So there's two core tenets to how I, I, I communicate specifically. Um, whenever we are gifted with the incredible opportunity to communicate the word of God, right? Transformation. Everybody say transformation. Transformation is the end goal. We want to speak and communicate for transformation. Now, when we look at the story of Jesus, one of the most effective communicators that ever lived, right? We noticed that his communication was primarily in two avenues or two expressions. It was teaching. Everybody say teaching and preaching. Everybody say preaching. What is the difference? I'm glad you asked. Okay. The difference is when you preach, right? It's transformation, but you're trying to get to transformation, right? Through, which one did I say first? Preach or teach? Teaching. Preach. All right. Preaching. 
There we go. Thank you. Sorry. My brain's like, I keep looking at this. I'm like, I got to get to this quick. But it's, uh, it's transformation. Preaching is transformation through inspiration. When you preach, right, the, 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 the karugo, like the, the, the karugma, like when it says that when you hurl the good news, it's kind of like a speech on any given Sunday or that speech in Braveheart and everything where you speak to the core of who people are, right? You speak and you inspire them from a place of identity. And from that place, you draw them into an aspect of transformation. That's preaching. When you look at the most effective preachers, right? A T.D. Jakes in my context and everything. That's what he does. He tells compelling stories. He inspires you to rise above that thing that is keeping you in a rut, right? And then after that, he takes scripture and says, that thing that you're feeling, that life that I'm calling you to, this is where it was perfectly lived. And he points you to the son of God. That's what preaching does, right? Now, teaching, the, the goal is still transformation. But teaching is transformation through information. So I give you information. I give you handles so that when, uh, uh, you know, my anointed, you know, like a backstreet boy over here, uh, pastor, he's not on there. Pastor Mickey's not on there. And I was playing and the music dies down and the cameras are off. And it's just you and life coming at you at the speed of life. Then you have handles, you have concepts, you have ideas, you have things that you can reproduce and they will give you the same consistent results, right? And so when I communicate, I'm not a preacher. I'm not going to paint, preach the paint off of the walls. There's people who can do that and they're really anointed. What I'm going to do is I'm going to give you specific concepts for you to understand and take home with you. Why is it important for me to, 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 to say this? It's because when you listen to a preacher or you're expecting to, for someone to preach, you listen with your heart. Remember, it's inspiration, right? And so, it hits. so you open your heart and you wait for them to speak the words of God for them to resonate with your heart. And from that resonant frequency, right, it calls you higher. But when it's teaching, you listen with your mind. You shut your heart and you listen with your mind. And if you come to a teacher, in a sense, and you communicate and you're waiting for them to, the whole time you'll be like, when's he going to start? When's he going to get to his point? When's he going to start preaching? Because there's that. But if they shift your perspective on the end, then you're like, oh, okay, now I'm going to start engaging. And a lot of my communication is this. Write these things down. Take them home, right? Then you study and research them yourself and then go to the Holy Spirit and say, you are the blessed teacher. There's something profound about the fact that when he gave us the Holy Spirit, the first way that he describes him is he's a teacher. He will come and teach you all things. And if getting things done was the operative thing, he would have said, I'm sending you a manager. You see what I'm saying? And so there's all those things. And, 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 and the main reason I feel like you guys should get the principles is because you are on the front end. You are the core of what God is building here. So people younger than you, right, in the faith and otherwise will come to you and they will look up to you to explain things. Now, maybe some of them didn't grow up in faith communities like y'all. So they will have very logical questions and just very practical questions. How do you do this? And how do you believe this? And so that's why for me, I felt like my gift to the body is communicating from that place. Now, every once in a while, I may encourage because that is a spiritual gift of mine. And encourage is a very simple word. It's a portmanteau, right? It's a mix. It's a mashup of two words, engaging and courage. So I'm here to engage the courage that's on the inside of you. If you have the DNA of God living on the inside of you, then I'm speaking to courage. Now, I know that's a very lengthy foundation and uh, DTR, like literally that's all that was, right? I was just defining a relationship. But we're going to go deep and we're going to go far. And, uh, and, and, and I just really don't want to lose anyone. Is that okay? All right, let's take a breather. Father, thank you for the Holy Spirit. So come, Holy Spirit, not ideas, not concepts. It's about you, Father. Come and speak to your people. Come and speak to their hearts. Let me speak to their minds, Lord God. And from that place, you bridge the gap between the mind and the heart. You encounter them in ways that they've never seen. I ask and I thank you. Thank you for the spirit of wisdom, finding perfect expression through these lips of clay. And I thank you for hearts postured, to take your word, mix it with faith so that it may bring profiting. I bless you and I thank you in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. 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 All right. My name's Reward Sabanda. Everybody say Sabanda. As you guys can tell, I'm based in Dallas, Texas right now with my wife, Pam. She is that Enneagram 7 who her entire posture on life is to tell jokes. Now, newsflash, she thinks her jokes are the funniest thing in the world. And she doesn't need you and your inferior sense of humor 
to ruin those or to affirm what it is. So she will come to you. She will spend three minutes telling you about how the joke she's about to say next is the best joke you've ever heard. Oh my gosh, you're going to love this one, babe. This was so funny. Oh my God, babe, did you come up with this one? Yes, but you're going to love it, right? She's going to tell you that you're going to love the joke. She's going to tell you the joke, which newsflash, you are not going to love because she's that type of person. And then she is going to laugh for a minute straight about the joke that she told you. Then she's going to look at you with confused eyes because you're not laughing. Then she's going to assume you did not get the joke. And she will tell you the joke over and over until you laugh. And then her work is done. So now whenever she approaches me with that, you know, that look that you just got a joke, I just start cracking up. I'm like, oh my God, it's going to be a good one. Tell me, baby, I can't wait. And she tells me, I'm like, oh my God, you're so funny. And I'm able to get through that ordeal in two minutes. That's why I still have my sanity. But that's my Enneagram wife, Pam. If you guys see her and everything, she's incredible. She couldn't be here, but she is our spirit animal. So we're going to be seeing more and more of that. I know you guys know someone who is like that, right? You know what I'm talking about? It's like, all right, I like, I'm laughing because you think your joke is that funny. So that's who we are. We're married, no kids yet. Um, but we are the proud parents of a Chia pet. Come on, somebody. It's like a little pig. Yo, yo, that was it back in there. Someone got to bring it back. I'm telling y'all, you're going to make a lot of money. But it's a little pig. We call it Piggy Smalls, and we love that. So one day the Lord will bless us with a baby, but it's one of those things. So as you can tell, she, I, from the accent and the last name, I'm really not from Texas. I'm from about 500 miles uh, north of that and about 10,000 miles east. And when you get to Wakanda, you hang a left in Zimbabwe. It's like right there and, and everything. But I, I, love, I love the fact that, hey, when you bring a specific perspective, God takes, right? It's the enemy. The reason the enemy tries to mess us up so much when it comes to racial diversity and all these things is because there is beauty in our context and in our stories, right? And when you take that and you sanctify it before the Lord and use that as your perspective for communication, God does incredible things. So a lot of what I'm speaking about today will come from that spot. But um, we're the associate pastors at the upper room over all the ministries, and we just love what we get to do. I also work with World Vision, taking people uh, to the ends of the earth. We're in 100 countries. We do a lot of work. But I love just seeing people get it for the first time that there's another world outside the U.S. And there's people there. They don't have as much as we do. They're actually happier than us. What is happening right now? I live for those moments and everything. So that's a little bit about me. I want to speak to the pioneers, the rebels and the runaways. This was the Lord, the word the Lord gave me today. And uh, he took me to John 15. So this is how it's going to go. We're going to jump into John 15. I'm going to give you guys your word. And then we're going to jump into the righteousness conversation. It's going to springboard into blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And then I'm going to teach you a little bit on that. And then on the back end of that, I will make a personal invitation that calls you higher to everything that God has called you to do. And we are going to try and do all of that in 20 minutes. Mine, I just lied to y'all. Listen, that's 20 minutes African time. So you might as well be like Uber Eats a pizza or something because we're going to be here until it's all done. Is that okay? All right. If you get done before I am, sit and listen to the word. But John 15, um, the word blessing, right? Uh, before we get into that, Blessing, it's an operative disposition. When you hear about the blessing, the blessing was always unto purpose. It was always unto bigger. And so I just love that you guys are postured to build what God is building here. And um, John 15, this is the word I felt like the Lord was saying to you guys. It says, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. I go new King James. I'd go King James, but people always think I'm weird. But I don't do that because I like, right? We all know it might not necessarily be the most accurate thing. But I'm one of those people. I am a sucker for epics, right? I'm Lord of the Rings all day. I can quote every. I'm that guy. So anytime I read the Bible, when you think about the Bible, what more epic premise could there be but the Bible? And I mean, it's clear. But when you read the Bible and like the message, it's just so weak. You know what I'm saying? It's like, it's like I will punish them. It's not the same as I will smite them with the rod of my wrath. I was like, yeah, that's my God. You know what I'm saying? So the new King James is, 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 is perfect middle ground, but that's where I read. It says, I'm the true vine and my father is a vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may, may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Right? Immediately, whenever Jesus, right, when he sets a premise, right, as something, it, it, it always does us good to, to understand why did he say vine dresser, right? Why is he giving us the analogy of the vine? Why couldn't he just say, 
I'm the butcher or I'm the rabbi or I'm the Jedi or whatever it is, right? Why particular vine dresser? It's very simple because when you talk about vineyards, we're about profit, right? Vineyards were cash crops, right? It was about making money. When someone said, I am a vine dresser or someone said, I own a vineyard, they were the merchants. They were businessmen. So when he takes this specific principle and he places it on the solid ground of commerce, it immediately tweaks our perspective to expect that there is going to be an ask for fruitfulness. So I want us to go into this understanding this. And immediately he talks about that. Verse 2, every branch in me that does not bear fruit. Immediately we understand that this whole thing that he's about to do. He took this whole aspect of the kingdom and all the complexities of eternity and everything. And he distilled it to one specific metaphor. And it is a metaphor of the vineyard and bearing fruit. So the greatest expression of who you are and why God has placed you in this, remember this isn't the sermon, this is a particular conversation to you, right? As 99, such an apt name and everything. Your particular thing is for you to go and bear fruit. Because remember, I loved when Pastor uh, Mickey was telling me the, the etymology of, your, of the nomenclature around your name. is like all of us, we have experienced the grief of being the 99 at one point. Right? Now, we're probably so doped up or whatever on hyped up on everything else that we did not know what a sad position we were in. Right? But when you step into the light, you're like, Yo, I wasn't as cool as I thought. You ever look at pictures from five years ago that goes evolution pictures? You're like, really? That was me? And I feel like that's essentially what we are. So for you guys, bearing fruit is going to be particularly important because people translate the kingdom through fruit. Right? They got to see something in you that is worth emulating. And that way, when you tell them about that, or they can come to you organically, it's supposed to happen organically, like fruit, right? To where they come and they're like, hey, what, bro, what are you taking? I've heard so many people ask me that question. I'm not even going to lie to you. They ask my wife what she takes because she drove. They ask me what I straight smoke. They're like, bro, what are you on? It's like, everywhere I'm going, either people are asking me what I smoke or offering me something to smoke. They're just like, you're just too hype to just be one of this. Here's a cliche. I'm like, I'm on that most hype. Hey, man, what's up? Cliche. But it's, it's one of those things. In 2020, right, everybody, if you were joyful, you were the opposite of anything. You were contra to whatever it looks like. Right? But the very kingdom of God, it's righteousness, it's peace, and it's joy. Jesus, there was no social media, there was no news back in the day. If you came to a group of people and you're like, so which one is Jesus? They'll be like, him, the happy guy. Why is that? Because the Bible says he was anointed with the oil of gladness above, even comparatively says above your companions. So it means he was the pastor Mickey in the group, right? The whole room was gravitating around him. Like, forget that creepy Jesus who was always like walking around like, no, he was joyful. So joyful. Jesus is a man of emotions. He says sometimes you look at Jerusalem and just start bawling. And at one moment, it's like he's just anger is coming out of him. The thing's just radical mercy. Jesus did not live a life tethered to emotions. Every time I think about Jesus, when I read the Gospels, he comes alive. And I just see someone surfing the wake of every possible emotion there was. And I think that's what drew people. I don't think it was his profound statements. It was just the fact that right here under Roman occupation, under the most racist regime to exist in that part of the world, there's this guy, he's just walking around and all it is, he's just like, he's just happy, right? And things just happen around happy people. And I want to be around that. That's why prostitutes and and pimps and, and, and pigs and otherwise, everything was always drawn to him because they were like, I miss that in my world. Everything about my context robs me of this specific thing, but you exist in that. And God has taken that same spirit, given it to you without measure, so that in any given context that you walk in, your fruit begins to scream so loudly that people are just like, I, I want to know what you're on. Oh, it's a person? Well, you know what? I, I have every single person right now has preconceived ideas and notions of who God is. And if you look at the strategy of the enemy, is this okay? I just feel like I can chill with you guys, right? Is this okay? Can we just talk? I promise you I'll get to the structure. Otherwise, all the Enneagram, uh, everyone else, you know, who's not a seven or an eight, or maybe the twos will have compassion. Everyone else will be like, bro, give me, struck, give me something. We're going to get to that, I promise. But I just feel like there's something incredible here. And so basically, your fruit... Fruit is everything. That's all God requires of you guys. And you have to be a community that bears fruit in this particular thing. Because here's one thing. Our faith does not make sense. You cannot make a logical case 
for why you believe these things that you believe in. I mean, are you kidding me? It starts by a snake talking to a woman and she eats a salad and nothing happens. But the moment a man eats salad, the world goes to hell. Like literally, that's, that's the story. That's what you're founding your everything on. It does not make logical sense. But how many of you guys know that you can't argue with fruit? You can't argue with joy. You can't argue with peace. You can't argue with righteousness. You can't be like, hey, I, I don't have silver. I, I, I ain't rolling in the dough like that. But what I have in the name of Jesus, rise up and walk. Oh, they can't argue with that fruit over there, right? It's the exact same thing with, uh, with Paul, like wherever he would go. And he was like, hey, it's like when I came declaring this, I did not come with enticing words of man's wisdom, but with demonstrations of the spirit and of power. Because power is fruit. And when I'm struggling, I'm bound in pornography, I'm shooting up and doing all these things. And you come and you whisper a simple prayer and I'm as skeptical as anything. And all of a sudden it's like, oh my gosh, I have an encounter and I know I've been set free and I have an encounter and I'm overwhelmed with feelings of peace and I'm over here and my brain is freaking out because I don't believe you. I hate you. I know the church is a bunch of fake phonies and hypocrites, but I just had an encounter and I can't stop crying and my heart is opening up for the first time. And wait, what? You just told me what happened to me when I was two years old that nobody else ever knew about and you just told me and you told me God was there and that he loves me and he told you to come and tell me that in the middle of me being mean, people cannot, cannot not with encounter. You feel me? That's why you have to be people of fruit and encounter because I'm telling you right now, the bullhorns aren't going to work. The programs aren't going to work. What's going to work is you coming into places and like this, being saturated by the power of God and community, then going out in the deepest, darkest place and just exploding Christ all over who they are. So let's go back to fruit. Here's what he's saying to me, to you guys. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. So what I love about this is, uh, right, he's already preemptively kind of speaking against the th- arguments that you will make up in your head. He's like, I'm not clean enough. I struggle with this and everything. And he's like, hey, you're already clean as long as you abide in the word. Listen to me. Verse 4. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. So basically what he's saying is the strategy is just abide. Have you ever noticed that as long as a branch is connected to the vine, it doesn't have to uh, strain to, 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 to produce fruit. It just happens naturally. And do you see the aptness of his rhetoric when he says the very virtues that the world needs to see in you, he calls them fruit of the spirit. Not fruits, but fruit, singular. What that means is when you're connected and you're living your life in the spirit, then effortlessly, joy, fruit of the spirit is love, right? Joy, peace, patience, or long-suffering, kindness, goodness, gentleness, meekness, self-control. Those things just... Can you imagine if you were having a bad day and someone came to you and every conversation that they had with you was filled with either love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. Can you imagine if the 60 or whatever people that are in this room, what that would do to San Francisco, if every single person... That can, if we were to make the fruit of God viral to where every single person that you encounter goes, I don't know about this, but that, those guys, those 99 guys, there's just something profound about them. And that's why God is so glorified when you leave lives that bear fruit, right? So what is he saying? Abide in him. Abiding means a constant and consistent. It's not like, I'm going to abide and I'm going to bear fruit. It's just like, hey, sometimes I miss it. Sometimes I don't. Sometimes I wake up, but sometimes I don't. But there's, it's this ethos. It's this existence that I, 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 I essentially work in. He says, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. Everybody say, bears much fruit. So there is your measure. For without me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered, and they gather and throw them into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire, and it shall be done for you. Another important aspect of who you are is you are the intermediates and the intermediaries between God's kingdom and its providence and the world that is dying and in need. So the power of being the type of people that you can ask God for anything on behalf of the people around you and he will hear you. Right there, that right there is 5X fruits. Right? That is fruit maximized, right? It says, if you abide in me in my words, whatever you do, by this is my father glorified, verse here, eight. By this is my father glorified that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. 
I felt like this was the first place that the Holy Spirit said to speak to you guys specifically. That if you're creators or creatives or you have been tasked with a kingdom mandate, the pressure is going to be to gauge your fruitfulness. I'm talking to creators specifically. Okay, thank you, Holy Spirit. If you're creative in this place or God has given you something to create, not even necessarily artsy, but whether it's an algorithm, it's like whatever, the temptation to steal your joy is going to be for you to judge your fruitfulness based on whether people enjoy your fruit or not. Right? So that means if you produce a song, you're going to want to quantify how fruitful that song was by how many people streamed it and liked it and everything. Do you understand what this scripture says right here? It says God is glorified not when people enjoy your fruit, but when you bear fruit. That means the metric for your success and the metric for your satisfaction within this kingdom and this dynamic of bearing fruit is whether you're bearing fruit or not. Regardless of whether the consumer enjoys your fruit or not. Some of you, you will create something that has the potential and the power to change the world and you will talk yourself out of releasing that thing because somehow in your twisted metric, you have gauged that it is not good enough or this community is not big enough, or your friends are not, whatever. The Bible right here just set you free, and it says, hey, my father is glorified when you bear fruit. Whether people enjoy it or not, whether people eat it or not, right? I'm telling you this right now. Like, my wife has to wrestle me to eat, uh, um, what do you call those little trees? You know what I'm talking about? Broccoli. Oh, my Jesus. Yes. Yo, I was driving in from the airport. And I literally saw there's a giant billboard and it says broccoli shot on. You guys know what I'm talking about? It's like a, an iPhone picture of broccoli. I was like, yo, broccoli has made it to a billboard before. I was like, hey, respect. You got to respect the player. You know what I'm saying? But I cannot stand what that looks like. But how many of you guys know that broccoli does not care if I enjoy it or not? Right? I don't even know if it grows on a tree or whatever it is. I have absolute distanced myself from knowing anything about broccoli. Right? I'm actively, actively actively pushing away from it but whatever it is the broccoli plant or tree or whatever it is it doesn't care if i like it or not right it just bears fruit and whether i eat it or not like it or not that has nothing to do with so that's the same mindset that you guys should have and right now it sounds like it's just a conversation like oh my gosh this dude is like the african king of cliches no but let me tell you something it's always in the small things that when you're out of this room and in instances and context and all of a sudden you're looking at something and you can see that if this thing lands it's going to have such incredible kingdom impact come on it's going to be money in your pocket what's up it's going to move you to a totally different zip code and then all of a sudden the anxiety and the attacks with the enemy and every single time you felt less than is going to rush into that room and try to wrestle the joy of that particular a moment and it's going to be the very simple things like this so i want you to know this if you're creative that hey as you go out there the fullness of the father's pleasure over you and him saying well done good and faithful servant and him saying you use my gift well is not how people receive it it's how faithful you are in producing that fruit i don't know why, why i went there but that's what happens when you get around wild people and the holy spirit says what she says by this my father is glorified that you bear my fruit so you will be my disciples Verse 9, this is a straight-up word for you guys. As the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. This is a word for your community, y'all. Because, believe it or not, persecution is coming. It's like, it's, it's, it's not even just in, uh, in San Francisco. It's, Texas is probably going to be last because, uh, I don't know, we're just different over there. But everybody else who pastors and who stands up for their faith in any context... We're on the cusp of, and in some places we exist in post-Christian communities where people aren't just saying Christianity is obsolete, but they're coming around and fighting the very ideals that you guys believe in. And I feel like what God has given you, the gift that he has given you to weather the storm that is coming is a gift of a community that is postured to seek him and to love him and to go after him. So your gift for weathering what is coming is this particular community. And I feel like that's what the Holy Spirit is saying. It says, abide in my love. God's love is most perfectly expressed, yes, in worship and yes, in intimate moments. But 90% of the times it's in God-given community. When you come in with a need and a hunger and a hurt, and Pastor Miki looks at you in the face and goes, hey, are you going through something? I just want you to know you're this, you're this, you're this, you're this. One of the saddest scriptures in the Bible is when it says David was in a mix and he came back and they had taken his kids and everything. You guys know the story. And he says his very men spoke of stoning him. 
And the saddest scripture in the Bible, I think, is when it says, and David stepped out, it says, and David encouraged himself in the Lord. Can you imagine that when everything around you is going after you and they hate you and, and you have to go and just be like, Lord, you are my shepherd. You brought me from here and you did all these things. And God has taken you and given you what David never had, which is a community of people that won't turn around you. So be the expression of love to each other. It says, these things I've spoken to you that my joy may remain in you, that your joy may be full. Look at that, the cardinal affections, joy and love. You're going to need that where you guys are going. It says, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. As is not a comparative statement. As is an embodiment clause within that. It means embody the love that I have for them. So what that means is even if they do unlovable things, I want you to tap into the limitless supply of the love that I have for them. Ask me for your, my perspective on who they are and then project that over them and not judgment and everything, right? Greater love is no man than this than to lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do whatever I command you. No longer do I call you servants for a servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all things that I heard from my father I have made known to you. You did not choose me. There's another word for someone. But I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your should, fruit should remain. So God is speaking to someone right now and saying, hey, I chose you. It might look like you chose this path, but before the foundations of the earth, only you could have given that song, that algorithm. Only you could have given that art, the expression and the life that it needed to have. And so I'm sending you into this place. It says, I chose you and I painted you that you should go and bear fruit. And the reason this fruit comes from the Lord is because it remains. Right now, from our worship to everything, we're riding on the shoulders of people that went before us and their fruit remained. And now we're given the gospel, right? Solid day and we go for there. And it says that you should remain, that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give you. These things I command you, that you love one another. So I wrote this down. I was like, so Lord, what are you saying? He says, the first thing that I want you to say to the 99 community is bear fruit. Wherever you go, let that be the metric. Am I bearing fruit? Am I producing? Am I creating? Am I loving people? Whatever the fruit, what Jesus, Jesus, the most fruitful, if Jesus was doing it, if Jesus was here and doing it through me, that's what he was. So the first thing he said, bear fruit. Everybody say bear fruit. And then the second thing that I felt like the Lord was saying to tell you guys is find your identity in it. Not in whether people enjoy it, not in whether you're accepted or not, not, not even in whether there is a demand for the particular fruit. Because when you chase the demand for your particular fruit, sometimes you make moves which are not aligned with God's purpose. Sometimes he tells you to stay put in a famine because he knows what's happened. But if you don't, right, if you don't find your identity in fruit bearing, then you will always seek opportunities. And you will end up in places that God did not put you there and everything because he sees the bigger picture. So he says, number one, bear fruit. The second thing is find your identity in it. And the third thing that he wanted me to tell you guys is you will be persecuted in this particular community. It's coming. It's going to be in the big ways and the little ways, right? It's going to be in legislation. It's also going to be nuance. It's going to be things. It's crazy. Things are going to be passed that marginalize you from bearing fruit in whatever context it is. But I want you to understand that your primary mandate is to bear fruit. Right? We read the story of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Those were people that understood their mandate to bear fruit. And for Daniel, it was within the political arena, right? So he went there and he bore fruit, and that got him persecuted. But his identity was like, hey, the same thing with Joseph, right? a slave. And he's like, hey, I mean, I could, you know, get, get with this and probably be a very happy slave and everything. But how could I do that to dishonor God? That's someone who understood that his mandate came from God. And you guys, more than ever, are going to have to understand what that looks like. And the, um, and the third thing, so he's like, bear fruit, find your identity in it. Verse three, you will be persecuted. And number four, God will be glorified in it. And the Lord says, hey, I want you to anchor everything, the persecution that you're going through on the simple fact that I'm going to be glorified in your fruit, in your persecution, in your faithfulness, and your testimony coming out of it. And so I just felt that, uh, does that resonate with you guys somehow? Yeah, so Father, I just come before you and I pray that what was not you and me, Father, would just fall to the ground. But what was deeply you would just be gra grounded in the soul and the core of this fruit-bearing community. I just thank you that, Father, you are putting your seal and your mark on them and you're sending them in a land, Father, that all the love they felt they needed from the city, they would find in and each in each other. I bless you and I just thank you. And I speak your blessing over that which you've already blessed. I'm not asking for you to bless them. I am just coming into agreement with the blessing that you've placed over them. I ask and I thank you in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.
Amen. All right. I promise I can lend this in 10 minutes. No, American 10 minutes, right? America. Is that good? Can I have 10 minutes? All right. Blessed are the poor in spirit and all those things. Matthew 5. We're going to jump into Matthew 5. So he was not like, I, I invited that guy. He spoke nothing about our series. He butchered our series, right? Matthew 5. Now, here's the thing. Let me, let, me, let, me, let, me, let me talk about some context real quick. Now, in order for us to understand the Bible, I see like mostly, right, uh, the, the primary demographics represented in this room, right? There's, there's African origins, right? Even within an American context, and there's a lot of Asians. So you guys understand fundamentally because you are, we, let me say we are older civilizations, right? We understand specific things. That language is for connection. Now, the American or the Western context that we find ourselves in, right, is a relatively newer civilization. So everything about American, not English. English is different. When I talk about English, you talk about Shakespeare, right? When you talk about American, think Snoop Dogg or Beavis and Butthead. I'm aging myself right there. It's just like, right, the core of American communication is utility. It's tell me what you're saying as quickly as you can so I can understand so we can move on. That's the dynamic. That is what happened when an empire is still relatively new, right? There is historical pressure for it to establish itself. But when you look at right, Asian communities, right, African communities, those are older empires. They're already established. And so now the last evolution in any empire is the evolution of language. Because now we have nothing more to build, so now we get to build our relational dynamics. So that's when you, when you look at it, whether it's Korean, right, or, or Mandarin, or, or even Zulu, or like whatever African language there is, a lot of the understanding is in the nuance, Right? It's not as direct. In most contexts, it's actually very, very rude to be direct, right? How we end the communication, the point isn't the point, right? Us in community, finding each other. That's why when you go to, I don't know if you guys have ever gone in African markets and even Asian markets because I've been there, right? There is even value in haggling back and forth. It's not about the commerce. It's about connection. It's about do you see me and do I see you? As a matter of fact, in my language in the Zulu, how you greet someone is you say the word saubona. Everybody say saubona. And the word saubona translated is I see you. Not in a weird, like, James Cameron avatar thing. You know what I'm saying? It's like, Navi. No. It's literally, I see you. The word, when you greet a Zulu person, the word is, Saubona, I see you. Because they understand that the fundamental need for any human interaction and connection is the need to be seen. And you know what the response is when a Zulu person responds to your Saubona? They say, see corner. Right? Ni is singular. C is plural. Because we understand people have agency. So you never refer to someone in singular. It's always plural. And their response is, I am here. I see you. I am here. Right? Can you imagine if someone is in pain and, 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 and you show up and you say, hey, I see you. And their response is, I am here. Because there is value in my pain to your context. And in, 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 in the Western context and in newer civilization, there's that thing to where it's like, hey, you have to hide. If you're going through something, you have to hide. You have to produce nothing or project nothing but the perfect persona because once more, your communal value, right, is utility. So if you show yourself to be weaker or whatever, the system, it's your life. I know it manifests different in your workplace and everything, but the truth of the matter is those, these are the social patterns that if we understand them, we understand culture and everything, right? So, man, I keep going on so many segues, but I'm, I'm going to come back to this. So basically... When we approach the Bible, if you don't get anything else from me, understand this. I want you to go like, everybody, put your hand right here and go, and then go like, just toss it. That is you throwing away your Western perspective to the kingdom, to the gospel, to all of this. If the most apt analogy for the kingdom of God was in a modern day Western context, Jesus would have been born today. But the reason that he places him in a highly social, highly personal dynamic and community is because that is the socio, the social lens that he wanted us to interpret the Bible in. So whenever you interpret the Bible in a modern day utilitarian concept, you miss a lot of the nuance. A lot of the words in this are in the new a lot of the meaning is in the words this was a book of invitation for you to come and ask the teacher and say so the first thing that you're thinking is when it says blessed are the poor in spirit it's not like oh i know what that means it means no the first thing that you're supposed to say is like what did poverty look like in the biblical context 
and you just rest in that and you let the Holy Spirit in revelation. Sometimes he'll take you to, sometimes he'll give you the answer. Sometimes he'll take you, he's like, hey, Google it. Or sometimes he'll take you to research. But then that glorious journey of discovery becomes the intimacy that happens. And anyone who's in a relationship or married or whatever knows that it's never about answers. It's about the questions, it's about the conversations. That's where true connection happens. So the first thing is, as we go into this, I want us to look at it from this particular lens. Because what hurts us in the West is when we try to distance this, when we try to study the theology of the Bible while distancing the sociology of the Bible. For example, when you read the book, when it talks about the church, right? The, 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 the reference that we have of the church is this. People sitting over there and me talking your ear off for like, I'm probably going on an hour by now, right? But when you look at it in this context, Paul talks about this. Church was a group of people who just loved each other, coming together. No one was an expert, and they were exploring together. And there was communal accountability. He literally says, hey, when you get together, someone brings a song, someone brings this, someone brings this, and then collectively we get to experience the expression of the kingdom together because you carry an aspect of who the king is that I am eternally impoverished if you do not give that expression. Right? That's another nod to us wanting to bear. So when we talk about this, when we talk about the context, I always want us to pay particular attention to the setting because Jesus was a storyteller. I want you to pay attention to the sociology of the Bible right? before you pay attention to the theology of the Bible because our sociology will always inform our theology and not the other way around. Right? A great story to, uh, about this. I know you guys have probably heard this analogy. Um, ethnocentrism, right? Where we take, based on our culture, when we take our cultural values and we use them to judge other people, the parable of the prodigal, they did a study and they went across different contexts and they asked them one simple question, why did the prodigal son fail, right? So they went to to Africa, for example, say, why did he fail? They said, it's simple, he left his family. Why? Because the core, right, of the African society is the family, right? So they went to the Soviet context and they asked him, why did the prodigal fail? And the students over there said, oh, it's simple. There was a famine, right? And they went to um, our Hispanic neighbors and they asked him, why did the prodigal fail? Same parable. They're like, oh, it's very simple. He was a foreigner and no one would help him, right? They went to an Asian context and they're like, why did he fail? He's like, oh, it's simple. He dishonored his father, right? And they came to the, to, to the West of the United States and they're like, why did he fail? It's very simple. He made bad decisions. He made bad investments. And he didn't have the right structures in place to have him success. The same parable, right? But in every other context, like done differently. So when we approach this, I want us to have the mindset of that. And for you, you are closer to interpreting this if you approach it from an Asian or from an African context than, than whatever that looks like. So Matthew 5, right? All that to say, Matthew 5, the, 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 the Beatitudes sound very different in tonality. Is that true? It doesn't sound, it sounds more James than John, right? It sounds very direct. It's like, oh my gosh, okay, are you saying all these things? Why is that? I feel like the answer is hidden in the first part of it. Uh, Mickey, are you there? Hang on a second. I can, I can just open it. Okay, can you read it from uh, the first verse? Yeah. Matthew 5. Uh-huh. Um, now when Jesus saw the crowds, okay, hang on one second. When Jesus saw the what? When Jesus saw the what? So what, when it, what was in his mind? Crowds, right? So that means everything that comes from here has to do with him seeing the, mount, the crowds. So he saw the crowds and something triggered him when he saw the crowds. And everything that exists from here is in the context of him seeing the crowds. Does that understand? So Jesus, he looks and he sees all these crowds. He's like, okay. All my meanness. He didn't say, oh my goodness. You see what I did there? Okay. Keep reading, brother. Yeah. Okay, now read it in one continuous flow without interruption. Mm-hmm. He said, Blessed are the poor in oh, Yeah, from the beginning, yeah. Okay. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, yeah. he went up on a mountainside and sat down. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So basically, this is what, what's happening. So many times we think the Sermon on the Mount was Jesus standing and talking to crowds. So Jesus sees crowds, and being the leader that he is, he thinks, they need help. They need love. They need pastoring. Oh my goodness. I need to talk to my leaders. You see what I'm saying? So he sees the crowd and he says, and his disciples came to him. So the reason that the sermon on the Mount is a weightier is weightier subject matter is because it was not a conversation to the masses. It was a conversation to leaders. 
That's why the standard is higher, and that's why it's so cut and dry. We understand any other time that Jesus used such direct language was when he was either talking to Pharisees, which were professionals, or when he was talking to his disciples, which were people that would carry the standard. That's when people got James. Everybody else got John. John. So this right here, the tonality is different because this is a conversation for leaders. And this is important because this is a room of leaders. So when you read the Beatitudes and he's talking about the kingdom, he's not talking about the people who will enjoy the kingdom. It's people that will carry the burden of advancing the kingdom. So that means everything that he says following here has a higher mandate on you guys because remember your mandate is to bear fruit. So then keep going into it. Then jump from that. Does that make sense? So now the stage is set. We understand he's talking to leaders. He's in a smaller room. But back then there was transparency. You would talk to your close disciples, but other people couldn't listen in. So the picture is he's sitting on a mountain. He's talking to his disciples and people are eavesdropping. Because towards the end it says, Matthew seven twenty eight. the crowds were astonished. Because they were watching him teach his people. But this conversation is to the caliber of people that you guys are. Which are the caliber of people that are sent to advance his kingdom in San Francisco as the core of the movement or of what he's doing. Does it make sense? All right, so keep going until we get to the blessed are they, yeah. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Mm-hmm. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Yeah. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Mm-hmm. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. For, for they shall be filled. You see what it's talking about? What is meekness? When he says blessed are the meek, meekness is power under control. So he's talking to people that will yield power, Right? Talking about blessed are the poor in spirit, right? Because there is a specific privilege to being a leader. So everything that he's saying is to undermine certain things that will become pitfalls for people who are meant to be people of influence. But then he gets to this and he says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Now, it's very easy for us when we look at it from the Western lens to think that what he's essentially talking about is, is metaphorically. Like, oh, I hunger for love. I hunger for righteousness. That's not what he's talking about. In that particular context, he was talking about prayer and fasting. Right? And here I have a... Um, um, 2 Corinthians eleven twenty two verse 29, Paul talks about this. He's talking about them. Are they ministers? Three times I was bitten with rods. So he goes into this litany of how, of, of how much they have trashed him and everything. And then he goes to this in, um, in, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among churches, in weariness and toil, in sleeplessness of often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often. So this right here is Jesus giving his disciples and saying, hey, if you hunger and thirst in the pursuit of attaining and then propagating this, he's talking about fasting and prayer and fasting specifically. So my conversation in the next five minutes is very simple. It's talking about, I'm going to explain to you prayer and fasting because that is the only thing that is going to keep you grounded and keep you powerful, but most importantly, keep you power filled in this particular assignment that God is sending you into. Right? So what is prayer and fasting? It's very simple. In order for us to understand what prayer and fasting is, we have to understand the tripartite nature of man. That man is in three parts. What are those three parts? Spirit, soul, and body. We understand that, right? Your core makeup is you're in three parts, spirit, soul, and body. Now I'm teaching. It's called the tripartite nature of man. Now with everything else, every entity has things that relate to that. It's, it's the, the receptors and the stimuli connect. For example, sound, right? is for ears, right? Smell or fragrance is for the nose. When you connect those, when you try to take a fragrance and you spray it in your ear, first of all, that's weird as heck. You know what I'm saying? But you don't get the same benefits because you mismatched the faculties. Does it make sense? So what is prayer for specifically in that tripartite makeup, right? Prayer is for the spirit. Thank you. Come on. We got a genius up in there. Let's go. Let's go, baby. Yes, sir. All right. I would have sat next to you in school, man. You would have been my best friend. Right? I said to someone else, and that's why I'm over here preaching and not like a doctor or anything. Right? So prayers for the spirit, but fasting is for the soul. What is the spirit? It is that part of man that came from God and connects with God. That's the spirit. What is the soul? The soul is what we call the center of self-consciousness. It's your mind, your will, your emotions, right? How you act, how you show up, your culture, all those are specifically in your soul. So prayer has everything to do with connecting with the Lord, right? Uh, 1 Corinthians 14, 14, I'm just going to give you quick references. Paul says, if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays by my understanding is unfruitful. 
There's multiple verses. Prayer is for the spirit. When you're praying, it's your spirit connecting with the cries of the spirit of God and then giving the expression. What is fasting for? Fasting is for the soul. Boom. You guys are smart. You did tell me they were pretty heady, right? Fasting is for the soul. Psalms 35 verse 13. But as for me, when, my, when they were sick, my clothing was sackcloth. I humbled my soul with fasting and my prayer returned in my own bosom, right? Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, all my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Then it goes to list all the things that only the soul can quantify. He heals my diseases. He does all those things. Sometimes how you hack worship is you tell your soul to begin to literally go through a list of all the benefits that God has done. Before you know it, it jumpstarts the spirit. And it's one of those things. But that's for a, 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 a conversation on that. So prayer and fasting, every single time Jesus talks about them, he talks to them in tandem because both of them have to do with the soul, which is our primary agent for interacting with the world around us, and the spirit, which is a primary agent or agency for us connecting with God. So now how does it work? David gives us, he says, I humbled my soul with fasting. So everything about your Christian expression has to do with the balance between your spirit and your soul, and which has ascendancy. That's why when you are forgiven justification, there's a soul-to-soul connection. But then sanctification is where the Holy Spirit, through his word, partners with you and leads you in a process to where you always bring your soul into a place of subservience to the spirit of God. Right? That's why Romans 7 and 8 talks about those who are led by the spirit are the sons. Sonship speaks to identity in that context once again when someone said he was a son it wasn't just because you were birthed by whatever son had to do with power of attorney that's why when someone came to age you would take them to the gates where all the elders are and you'd say this is my beloved son in whom i am well pleased what that meant is if tomorrow that son shows up and saying i am doing business on behalf of my father they know that that son operates in the pleasure of their father and whatever they speak represents this abanda household or the cho household or whatever that looks like because sonship had to do with business and sonship has to do with all those things so it's all about that that's what it is so now in prayer the challenge there's a narrative i'm not going to go into it and maybe i may we'll see what the holy spirit does but there's a the disciples go up and they they, tr- they tried to cast a demon out of this kid. You guys know the story. And they can't, right? He wipes the floor with them, literally, right? And verse 17, I'm going to just go into it real quick. So I brought him to your disciples. They could not cure him. That's the father. Verse 17, Jesus answered and said, Oh, faithless and perverse generation. Oh, what? Faithless, right? Note that. How long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him here. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and he came out of him, and the child was cured from that hour. Why couldn't they do it? They were faithless. That was his indictment, right? It makes sense. And so, verse 19, then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, How, why could we not cast it out? Then Jesus said to them, because of your unbelief. What is unbelief? It's lack of faith. You see, it's still consistent, right? And I want you to understand this. For assuredly, I say to you, if you have the faith of a mustard seed, right? Not the size of. Size is just an aspect of it. There's a really, if you want to geek out, look at the mustard seed and ask yourself, why did Jesus use the mustard seed? It's the only seed that can be genetically modified. It's the only seed that has a seed to tree ratio. It's incredible. You're like, oh, that's what he meant. And size is just an aspect of it. I won't get into that, right? I won't geek out over there right now. It says, but because of it, I say to you, if you have the faith of a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here and it will move and nothing will be impossible for you. So what is he talking about? Faith. If you have the caliber of faith that looks like that, has, that shares the same attributes as the mustard seed, nothing will be impossible to you. Verse 21, however, this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. This kind of what? The kind of what? <laughs> Someone say demon. How many of you guys have heard that? This kind of demon, right? People are like, hey, there's certain types of demons that cannot go except if you pray and fast. That's true, but that's not necessarily the statement. Remember, the premise of his statement was unbelief. So he said, you couldn't do it because of your unbelief. It had nothing to do with the demon. If he had said, you couldn't do it because this is a bad demon. And then at the end of his statement, he says, this kind does not go out except to pray and fasting. You would know that he was talking about the demon because he was inconsistent. The demon was inconsequential. The problem was their lack of faith, rather their unbelief. And so he goes on to say, if you have the type of faith, which is bigger than this unbelief, then anything you ask for will be, will, will be possible for you. However, this type 
does not go out except through prayer and fasting. The word um, go out there is also the same. When you go into the study and everything, it talks about it's not released. It talks about something like a force, right? It does not go out. So, however, this kind of what? Unbelief. You see? So, he is bringing us back. Why is this important? It's like, hey, when you have faith, the only thing that can undermine that faith is unbelief. However, there is a certain level of unbelief that cannot go out. That is not unleashed out of you or released except through prayer and fasting. So then the logical question, and I'm going to land it here, is what has prayer and fasting got to do with unbelief? I'm glad you asked. What is prayer? Prayer is the language of creation and intimacy. Prayer is where we connect with God. We understand his plan and purpose for us in whatever context that we're in. And then we give it words to partner with, right? And we use the same thing that he speaks things, they become realities. Then it makes us in his image according to his likeness, right? We are the effect, he is the cause. The effect always mirrors the cause. Therefore, when we speak, things happen. How many of you guys know that words create worlds? It's obvious. The reason that we're alive right now is either someone spoke something into our life that became a reality. Maybe they told us we can do it, and we went ahead and we did it. Or they told us we couldn't, and we're still not doing it. But that's the power of words. Words creates worlds. So in prayer, we connect to the spirit of God and he gives us the words and we speak things into existence. The one thing that stops us from doing those things is unbelief. And unbelief, remember, is rooted in the soul because unbelief is this created, curated reality of what we deem possible and impossible. So if I believed that if I stretched out my hand and prayed for Mickey and he was sick and he would be well, if I believed that would happen and I stepped out and I did it, it would happen. But the truth of the matter is the moment I, I, it's a 50-50. I don't necessarily believe why. Because the reality teaches me and tells me that that is not logical or practical. It cannot happen. So when you get into a place and a space of fasting, what happens? Fasting takes your soul. It humbles your soul like what David does. It brings it under Submission of your spirit. Your spirit comes into a place of ascendancy. And do you know why that's important? Because your spirit originates from the realm of the impossible. Your spirit just connected with it and heard God's will and heart for that particular situation. So your spirit does not have unbelief. So how strong your soul is, how strong your mind, your will, your emotions, your connection is will determine whether you see answered prayers or not. Because it fundamentally determines how you pray or not. Because remember, according to the book of James, it is the prayer of faith that heals the sick, the sick man. All of this to say, why am I having this conversation? If you guys don't mind, could you just, uh, could we just stand up and... Uh, I'm going to lend it here. I didn't wrap it up as much as I did, but that's y'all's fault. You guys had me geeking out and just hanging out here. But Mickey, if you guys can just kind of get something kind of playing in the background. And I want to lend it here. Why am I having this conversation with you guys? Why did I go as in-depth as um, I did? Why am I talking about doing the impossible? Why did I make this? And you guys can go and literally do it. A whole study on it. It is fascinating. It's fascinating how the Bible says my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. When you look at that, that word is the word um, in Latin. It's, uh, it's the word scientium for science. Literally, the reason that we don't understand a lot of things is because we don't understand the science of God. And fasting at its very core is the science of God. When you abstain from fasting. I'm talking about when you don't eat anything. It's not just a spiritual exercise. What happens is, uh, at first of all, you go through all those withdrawals for the first three days. You just, if you're just drinking water, that is, right? Because your whole body operates um, when it comes to energy. It's, it's all about energy. It's how does the body convert energy. You can, you can look into this. There's people making a killing just on, on fasting because they understand this. But after three days, what happens is because you've stopped, your energy is not from things that you consume, right? Your body goes to ketones and it starts burning ketones, right? For energy and everything. But what happens is, that's incredible. Around day four or five, what happens is there is a fundamental shift. And then your body goes into a state of what you call autophagy. Auto, right? And fast, to eat, fagio, to eat. And what autophagy is, it's when the body starts burning fat cells and, and, and impurities in your body and start converting those into energy. So fasting is one of those things. It actually cleanses your body and everything. There's, 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 there's fascinating science to what it looks like. But God would never call us to do something which harms us. 
And so when you do it an elongated fast, I don't know if you guys have known that, day six or seven, you get the most clarity you've ever had. It's repairing like pathways in your mind and everything. Your energy, it's not this energy I ate and it crashes, there's ebbs and flow. It's the clean burn. There's incredible things. But anyways, why, why is the Lord calling us to fast? Why did I feel like that was the word for you guys? Why did I fall on this way? It says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. It's because God has called you to bear fruit in very hard ground. And God has called you to do the impossible because without the power of God and without the ability to do the impossible, planting a church in San Francisco is impossible. It's an impossibility. Existing in the family that you exist in is an impossibility. And we are people that will have to move in the power of God for us to be able to bear the fruit that he requires for us to bear. So the task that you have ahead of you, you cannot accomplish without the power of the Holy Spirit. And the quickest way is pursuing him through prayer and fasting. Being a people of prayer. Being a people who fast. I love that, Pastor Meek. He loves to fast. We're having conversations. And that's why when you fast, you hear from God so clearly. Because all your doubts and all, all the facts are now in a place of subservience and your spirit is higher. And so I just feel like the Lord is, is, is calling two types of people. The first, the first group of people is he's just calling you back to himself, to a place and a space of intimacy. He's calling you back to just the curiosity of devotion, the pursuit, the passion, wanting to know him. When you read the Bible, the reality of what those people went through, their passion, their excitement, their joy is such a far cry from your experience and your existence in this. You carry the same gospel. You believe in the same God. You read the same Bible. But there's nothing about that that is consistent with your reality. So you traffic on ideals. You say, I, ideally, right, I understand and I agree with the ideals. But the reality, the manifest reality of what this looks like in my life is furthest from the truth. And the Lord, I feel like, is calling you back to a place of intimacy. To come and know him before you can make him known. It says he called the disciples to himself and then he had conversations about how they could reach the world. So that first group of people is that just a call to intimacy. And it should be everyone, but it might not necessarily be. That's fine. And if you're one of those people that you're also like, hey, I, I just came here for whatever. I don't even know the Lord. I also give you an opportunity just to make your life right with him. But then the second group of people is the people that you know that God has called you to do the impossible. I'm not talking about in a weird Pentecostal way. I just know that you know the journey is going to cost you. It's going to cost you everything. And you know that when you fall asleep and you dream, you dream of the impossible. You dream of revival and movements. You dream of God visiting you. And uh, you dream of God taking a hold of your life and making it matter. You dream of the book of Acts when you dream. And if that's you in this room, I feel like God is calling you right now just back to that place and saying, I would never ask from you anything that costs you more than what you get. There's so much better things where I am than what you have holding on. 